Hey, and welcome to On Opinion, the Palia podcast. I'm Turi Bunting. We live in opinionated times. Culture wars, identity politics, polarization. Everyone has an opinion. But do we know where our opinions come from? Do we know why we think what we think? In each episode, I'll talk to experts across all disciplines to help us understand the nature of opinion, how we form ideas, why we argue, and what that means for society. Today, we're thrilled to be talking to Maren Urner. Maren is a German neuroscientist, co-founder of Perspective Daily, which we'll come to at the end of this podcast. She's the best-selling author of Raus aus der ewigen Dauerkrise, which I'm told is almost perfect German pronunciation for coming out of our permanent crisis. And she's a professor in media psychology at the University of Applied Sciences in Berlin. Maren, thrilled to talk to you. Thanks for joining us. I'm so happy that we finally managed to find an appointment, right? That was already a journey so far. Long, long journey. Exactly. Um, Maren, I want to start, if that's okay, by um, picking up one of the, the ideas that you talk about in your two books, but also you talk about in your media columns, this notion that actually humans are wandering around in the 21st century with a Stone Age brain. What do you yes. mean? Yes. I uh, First of all, I don't mean that as an insult. Um, I also have a Stone Age brain. You have a Stone Age brain. We all have it. And it's more meant to be in a humble way to talk about our brain. And what do I mean by that? Because basically our brains, well, your brain, my brain, they didn't change much in terms of their basic functionality, the mechanisms and how they determine what we think, how we talk and how we behave in this world since the Stone Age. It's basically still the same. And only, and that's my, where my conviction and my message as a neuroscientist comes in, and also as a person who tries to understand why we're behaving in a certain way often, um, is that we have to accept that. That's my main message. Like we, we shouldn't pretend that we are so smart and advanced and so 21st century and different from our Stone Age ancestors, but that basically we are ruled in many ways still by these same old mechanisms. And to make it a bit more practical, for example, what we all have is this negativity bias. And what does that mean? That basically means that these Stone Age brains are very much optimized to pick up everything that is negative and thereby a potential threat in a way faster, more intense and also more memory allocating way compared to neutral or positive information. So just to jump in, just because yeah. it's, a, it's a peculiar notion. I think what you're saying by us having a Stone Age brain is that actually our brains were designed for a particular period and that the period has changed. So it's, 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 it's actually that we live now in the context in which some of the behaviors of our mind are just not suited. Is that, is that what you mean by this sort of exactly. disconnect between exactly. the shape of our brains and the world in which we live? Exactly. And the funny thing really is that this environment that you just like pointed to 
basically comes across or came across because we built it with our brains and that's the funny bit basically we used these stone age brains or our ancestors more recent ancestors used those stone age brains in order to build an environment for example flying to the moon building smartphones and all these kind of things having developed societies whatever that might mean and coming up with all these kind of clever ideas but then still there's so many mechanisms that are there since the stone age that are no longer basically functioning in this new environment that we built with those brains because we created something where we basically have to get ourselves up to speed or ourselves up to speed in order to not get overwhelmed. For example, coming back to this negativity bias, that's a useful thing, right? Just remember back in the times, or not remember, but imagine, because we haven't been alive then, but remember our ancestors when, for example, the mammoth or the saber-toothed tiger was standing in front of the cave or was hunting our ancestors, then it was probably a good idea of our brains to signal those negative news in a way more intense way than, let's say, having a nice place to sleep, like a neutral or positive information. But now with the smartphones in our pockets, we basically overwhelmed by these negative news on a, let's say, minute or second um, basis. So it's no longer like once per week or per month that we are in this alarm situation where we basically fight, flight or freeze in order to survive. But we built an environment where that can be a constant condition and that's not good. Okay, so so just to, to back up a little bit, um, back in the Stone Age when our brains last evolved to, um, we lived in a particular kind of context and that context was more threatening was more was more life-threatening was more dangerous um pointing to this negativity bias that you're talking to um and our, our brains therefore over focused on the danger um and not they didn't over focus on the time they only over focus on the danger if we think of ourselves in today's context where that danger is diminished and we're still bringing that um, the concern about the saber-toothed tiger to um, Instagram likes. Exactly. The daily news, so to say, right? And that's also where, like, if you if you think about it, where, of course, the business model from news companies and, and social media companies kicks in. Because if it's more negative, then more people will click on it, interact with it, engage with it, and so on. So that's where the editorials go then, because that's how you make the money online. And that makes total sense if you think about it in with a short-term perspective. And that's where another mechanism of our Stone Age brain kicks in. We are basically more optimized for short-term thinking compared to long-term thinking. So the, uh, the challenge really is that we have to organize us and our society and our living together so to say in a different way where we take more let's say attention or put more attention to long-term questions for example coming back to the negativity bias what does really help me to understand how the world functions what are actually really good news that help me to understand and then thereby interact in a proper way in this complex world with all the information available but also when it comes to the bigger challenges of our times like the climate climate crisis we definitely need a long-term perspective and go away and finally eventually leave this short-term thinking for example from politicians um, but also from media companies and other companies dealing with fossil fuels and other things 
Okay, amazing. So we've we've established one this negativity bias. Too many saber-toothed tigers in the past means that we focus too much on the on the bad stuff today. Two, short-term thinking um, as opposed to long-term thinking. It's much easier for us to focus on that famous phrase, the urgent rather than the important. Where does that come from? If take us back to our, our caves, why is it that the that us humans have this propensity to think short term rather than long term again this is a, a good mechanism in order to make us survive right i always ask people like okay what do you if you, if you imagine like in your philosophy we like to have these thought experiments right so just if we all try to imagine we are our brains now so we just put ourselves into our own heads, right? And we are comfortably, comfortably sitting, lying, or whatever, relaxing in our head there. What's the most important task that's at hand for us as being our brain? We have to keep this organism that we are sitting, lying in alive. So, of course, it's more important, let's say, in a cost-benefit analysis, to Think short term first and foremost, because if we are dead, nothing else literally matters. <laughs> You're laughing, right? It's so simple, but it's so true. And if you if you start, I I would say like if you put on your glasses with this with uh, with this understanding, and you look at the world and your own in quotation, stupid behavior, and here I mean my, your, and all our stupid behavior that we sometimes have, right? Like from eating the unhealthy food to making bad decisions when it comes to relationships or other things, right? That's always the short-term thinking. It's always at least partially involved. And that's just our brain trying to protect us, trying to keep us alive. And, 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 and that's what we have to understand and then be a bit more humble about it. So what are the other what are the other key things that you've teased out um, as a neuroscientist thinking about the ways in which we express ourselves today? What are the other features of this Stone Age environment and the ways in which it shaped the brain that we still carry today? Yeah, um, there's plenty, but maybe um, one of the important ones that I love to highlight is our habitual thinking so basically the habits that shape our not only thinking but also our behavior or maybe even more important our behavior we are habit beings so to say and again first maybe start with the question why is that the case what is our brain doing when it's doing something in an automatic way not putting much effort or thinking into our behavior well again i try to invite you and all the listeners to take a place in our head in your head in their heads and imagine okay so now your most important task is to keep this organism alive how do you do that well by a topic that's very, very much discussed at the moment uh, from a different angle, saving energy, right? That's that's the main mechanism because you never know when you get food again. And just like to put a number on it, 20% of our energy use is used by the brain, even though it's hardly 20% of our weight. Right. <laughs> I haven't seen a human being where the brain um, takes a, a one-fifth <laughs> of the weight, right? It would look pretty funny, I guess, but I guess the, the message uh, becomes clear, right? It's, it's an enormous enemy, um, not enemy, sorry, energy-consuming thing in our head with approximately 86 billion cells, by the way, and that takes energy. So it's, of course, good advice if you lose use as little energy 
lose as little energy on something that's not important. And by creating habits that are done in an automatic way, so you have some capacity free in order to do other things like listening to podcasts, doing politics, working, having sex, enjoying life, eating, whatever, right? Like do the things where you really want to pay attention to. So approximately 90 to 95% on an average day we act out of habits. We don't think much about it. And that can become tricky. Again, now, 21st century, if we create habits that are not good, especially not good in terms of long-term thinking or long-term survival, then we have to change those. Like, we have to change those on an individual level. And here I'm talking about obesity, I'm talking about smoking, drinking, not moving enough, all these things that we do because we get used to, let's say, a lazy lifestyle or supposedly easy lifestyle, which as we all know, right, rationally, we are very much aware of that, that it's not healthy for us, but it's still tricky to change. And on a societal level, we created so many habits that are not healthy, not healthy for us as individuals, but also especially not healthy for us as a species in terms of long-term survival on this planet. If you look at um, today, what, from your perspective, are the kind of key features of 21st century society which jar with the brains that we're carrying around inside them? Hmm, that's a good question. You've talked about plenty for example yeah, we talked yeah. about the fact that we have access to food we have access to sugar for example in all in all contexts our bodies and our brains as we all know are designed to store that as much as possible because as you said um you never know where your next meal is going to come from when you're a um an yeah. early homo sapiens so we know there for example there are all sorts of health issues which associate which are sort of d derived from the problem yeah of a, of I, a stone age brain in a 21st century world but what what else in a either media context or political context or yeah, or relational one I find it really tricky to like pinpoint like one or two most important ones because for me, of course, they're always interconnected. Like that's usually the challenge just to put this like for one second on a meta level. It's always tricky um, to find, let's say, a linear thought because in my head, it's always a network. Um, so so then if you ask me, okay, what where do you think is the most important or one of the most important bits, they are all connected, right? Because if we are living and you, you, you summarize some of the, stuff or some of the things I mentioned if we have this unhealthy lifestyle that also makes it makes us miserable for example right we all know this is this is not meant to be in a let's say sometimes people pick it up in a in a kind of esoteric way right you like you have to be true to yourself in order to be able to let do good in the world and these kind of things and and that's so true because is biology right and I always like them want to shout and sometimes I do and say yeah um, let's please just use the bio biological explanation for that, because um, as we all know, um, it makes us unhappy if, for example, we disconnect ourselves from other people. Maybe that's a good one to, to um, highlight here again, the social aspect, right? We are often now these days in a highly connected digital world, very lonely, like the, the uh, World Health Organization is even talking about a pandemic of loneliness 
And in some countries, it has been called an epidemic of loneliness. For example, in the UK, I know there's even uh, um, uh, in the government, there's a special task force trying to tackle the problem of loneliness. And that's so weird, right? Because we are, we've, we've never been more connected. I mean, mm -hmm. we are talking to each other, sitting in different countries, right? We've met in another country where we're both not living. Like we are all connected all the time, but then still the number of people and also especially young people, not only old ones, who say that they are feeling lonely and isolated is growing. And we have to do something about that because if we know one thing about the brain, our Stone Age brain, it is the fact that we are all social animals, that we strive when we are in community, that we need the support of other people, that we need to feel connected. Fascinating. Okay, so con connection, critical. We don't do that terribly well. Um, excess, but also, um, I suppose, excess of content, excess of food, etc., which we're not terribly good at dealing with. Um, yeah. This negativity bias that you've just described, and perhaps most important of all, this short-term thinking um, yeah. that uh, so all 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 features which play into a informational landscape, which is tricky. Um, you also describe the problem of habit and I, in the in the way that you describe the problem of habit you say we spend 90 to 95 percent of our time not thinking you've even gone further in, in in previous things that you've written you you describe the human as not so much irrational but um that the ways that we understand the rationality of human beings is wrong yeah help me help me understand what you mean by that yeah, now it's the sad thing about the podcast that uh, people don't see me smiling, but probably you can hear it via <laughs> my voice right now. I even have to laugh a little bit because this, I think, is one of the trickiest dichotomies, or let's say most wrong, if that's um, okay to say, dichotomies um, that we came up with as a human species. Like, because I, I, I like to highlight um, dichotomies that are not there. So basically, they are pseudo dichotomies. And one of the most famous ones is, as I just tried to explain, or, or I will try to explain now, is the one between rational and emotional, let's say, thinking, decision-making, behavior, being, so to say. And often it goes a bit like this. There's the rational side, and that's the side where we weigh arguments against each other, where we maybe even come up with a pro and con list, and we ask other people what they think is best, and then we try to make a very smart and well thought through decision and on the other end of the spectrum or the other category is that there's these emotional things that they are highly irrational to use the opposite of the rationality and they are more let's say not thought through they are more they are faster they are really out of some some kind of weird uh, mechanism that is sometimes overruling our rational thinking when we behave in certain ways and are controlled by things like anger fear or maybe also happiness or being in love or something like that like people being in love often called irrational as well hmm. and it couldn't be this dichotomy couldn't be more from the truth than anything else. And why is that? And it's it's not hard to understand. I'll try to summarize it with a few sentences why I think it's so wrong to think about it in this way. Oh, and by the way, often it's the case then that the rational side is more the 
male side and the emotional is more related to female decision making it's also interesting and more like the rational is the strong male dominant part and the emotional is the weakness like don't show emotions because that makes you weak right and there's some female part like like boys don't cry that's basically what I'm referring to here. This is almost like a, sorry to interrupt, it's almost yeah. like a sort of a folk philosophy here, yeah. isn't it? That yeah. we, we have this, we, when we think of thought, we think of the brain, the emoji as a little brain or a, or a yeah. thought bubble. Uh, when we think of feelings, we think of the heart. Yeah. Um, as if these two things... Um, was somehow different. We, we, we know that yeah. feelings do not exist in the heart, but yet we keep on talking about it in that way. And we don't, yeah. and we also know that thought is also profoundly embodied. And yet exactly. we continue to think about the brain in that way. Exactly. So th it is this folk philosophy, which does have a quite impact, sort of has proper impact on the way that we think. It has, and it's it's. Um, now I have to go. I have to pick this up because that's one of my um, messages. How I put this um, false dichotomy into action, or try to highlight that it's wrong, is whenever you, we use the heart reference in the language, and there's plenty of incidences like um, uh, where we use this heart metaphor as something related to feelings. I now these days use the brain. So whenever somebody says like, um, oh, I'm so, like in German, for example, you have the expression uh, herzlichen Dank, so that you really thank somebody from your from the bottom of your heart, right? right. I would say, oh, thank <laughs> you from the bottom of my brain. And, and, and then people go like, oh, yeah, she's the new scientist, right? But then I can start the discussion because they see how omnipresent this brain metaphor that you just highlighted um, is also in our language and now coming to the explanation why I think it's wrong is just because what you already said right we, we all know if we are really honest that it's all connected there's only this one body of course we have a brain but the heart basically it's a muscle to be true it's a muscle it's a very important muscle it keeps us alive but it's nothing more than a muscle all our feelings are in our brain and also of course we feel it in our whole body but the main dominant let's say center is our brain and now even taking it from the let's say more important perspective of the philosophical question is there anything and the, also the pragmatic question uh, is there anything like a rational and an emotional decision no why not because whenever we make a decision we have to have certain preferences if we don't like something more than something else we can't make a decision right if i ask you please put your signature here and i put two pencils in front of you one is blue and one is green you have to make a decision based on your preference there's people who have damages in their brain where basically higher cognitive functions and emotional processing is taking place and they are really really un unhappy guys it's, it's um, mostly men actually I haven't heard about a woman who has this condition but anyway like they can't pick up that's why I use this pencil ex uh, experiment here they can't pick up a pencil any longer to put a signature because they don't have any preferences so it's these brain areas where everything comes together you can't just say okay it's emotions or it's higher cognitive um, capacities and why is that so important? Because only because we have preferences, we can make decisions. So now, now what's the question? What are our preferences based on? Well, of course, based, they are based on values. And what are values? They are based on emotions. So putting this together, those three steps, 
we can only make rational, in terms of having a preference, decisions, goal-oriented decisions, because we have values, and values are determined by our emotions, our feelings, our preferences. So every so-called rational decision is always emotional, because if we don't have any values, any preferences, any emotions, we can't decide anything. So there's some corollaries here, which is that the um, that this Cartesian notion of of reason is yeah. um, is unfindable. We are embodied minds, and we are not just embodied minds; we're deeply emotional minds as well. Um, but um, when you combine this with all the various different problems, which you know Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky flag in Thinking Fast and Slow, all our biases, and you combine it with what you've described as this mismatch between the shape of our brains and the environment in which we live, this Stone Age brain that you talk about, um, there's a, it sort of surfaces a question, which is if humans are actually incapable of being rational as individuals, do our big rational projects make sense? And I suppose the big one to jump into, given your interest and ours too, is does it pose questions around uh, democracy? Does it pose, does it ask whether humans are in fact able to take the best decisions for themselves. Um, does it put all our collective rational projects um, sort of under under scrutiny? Yeah. Uh, well, I have to sigh here because that's that's the stuff that's, let's say, literally keeping me awake at night sometimes, uh, sometimes more, sometimes less, depending on my mood. Because uh, that's really the question, or let's say, box of questions so to say that are at the brain of our future right <laughs> another one the heart of our future i see what you did there <laughs> i'm i'm going to to put this interaction for the rest of the podcast i assure you but like that's that's really the most important um bucket right like in terms of it involves, uh, that's why I say bucket, because there's several sub-questions involved there. Like, how do we organize ourselves and how do we organize us as a group? And then depending on, on what level we are looking at us, it could be, let's say, a family, it could be a couple, it could be a town, um, a country. And then, of course, uh, the most basic level or the most connecting level, uh, the humankind, our, our species, right? Where do we go from here? And I think it's really, really important, and I think that's also the only chance we have if we want to have a future on this planet, is really to ask this question in an honest way, what would be a rational decision? What would be the direction we want to go to? And I'm on purpose using the word would or the, let's say, grammar that puts this into... into um, let's say, hopefully a bit thought-provoking, but hopefully also making everybody's listening think, where do I want to go? What would be a rational decision for me in my different roles? And I just highlighted a few groups that we are sometimes more, sometimes less feeling connected to, right? Like, first of all, the relationship with ourselves. That's the one we have all our life. So please take that um, serious. And then all the relationships we have in terms of family, friends, but also as citizens and, and uh, inhabitants and, and all these kind of things. And then really asking this question in a more honest way, what would be rational? And here I think it's really important, like once we hopefully 
not forget, but kind of overcome this false dichotomy between rational and emotional, asking the question, okay, if we want to have a future, a good future, a future that's worth living for many people on this planet, then we can ask the question, what would be rational decisions in order to get there? And then it becomes a completely new, not completely new, but in, in many ways new let's say, process in terms of our communication and then hopefully also in terms of our decision-making because then it's no longer most important who's winning, losing, or if we talk about politics, which party is gaining or losing seats in parliament or whatever form we are organizing uh, the government in. But it's really becoming a question of what would be the best for most of the people. And this might sound very, let's say, I don't know, naive, maybe it is naive, but maybe we have to ask these naive questions in order to to get a bit more detached from our habitual thinking that, for example, politics are in a certain way, right? It's all about power grabbing and, and people on top, they do whatever they want anyway, right? That's not going to get us any further. Like I always say change by design or, or ask the question change by design or disaster. How bad does it need to be for us in order to be naive and really question our habits and habits here really also involve, for example, um, political structures and societal structures and, and behavior and thinking on those levels. How bad does it need to be before we change things? And we see, for example, the results um, related to the climate crisis, to changing environment due to our behavior, to our habitual behavior comes it to, let's say, mobility uh, or talking about food production, talking about energy production, where we see, hey, this is no longer working. We need to change. How do we deal with How do we deal with them? What can we best do to, um, to at a personal level and a political level, um, counteract some of those key flaws? Yeah. So in my most recent book that you so nicely pronounced in German, Raus aus der ewigen Dauerkrise, so leaving the perpetual crisis behind or the eternal endless crisis behind, I developed a concept that I call dynamic thinking, which basically is a counter strategy to the static thinking that our Stone Age brain often like lures us into basically and the dynamic thinking comes with three main ingredients that I then and let's say on several pages I describe in in more length and depth but basically to summarize here very quickly the first ingredient is asking ourselves and also then in groups including politics more often what for instead of against what and what do I mean by that when we train our brain and thereby creating new habits into a way of asking and thinking and behaving in a way where we always put first and foremost where we want to go to, what we want to achieve and thereby creating a future-oriented perspective, we create a completely different dynamic compared to what we often experience now these days when we try to argue against something, when we defend ourselves, when we defend our views, when we finger point to the people, groups and whatever, whoever has done something wrong, the scapegoat search and all these kind of things. It's always backwards oriented. But if we ask ourselves what for, we are looking forward. And we also involve our most important capacity that we have as a human species, which is our imagination. 
And that really separates us from all other species on this planet. And all, of course, John Lennon already knew it, singing about imagine, imagination in his most famous song, but it's really true. It creates a different mindset. It creates a different thinking. And you ask about whether we can change our thinking. Yes, we can by using this first ingredient. And then the second ingredient brings it more to the communal level as well by redefining groups. What do I mean by that? Often now we define groups and our Stone Age brain loves to define groups because it also keeps us alive, like looking who's good or bad. And we often define groups by concentrating on what separates us from other people. So uh, I could say, you are a man, I'm a woman, right? We could say we have different nationalities and we will find plenty of things that separate us and thereby we could create two groups between the two of us. But we could also ask ourselves, what, what, what connects us? Is there, let's say, the smallest or tiniest common denominator between us? And one thing would be, for example, yes, we both went to the International Journalism Conference in Perugia. Yes, we are both interested in how we can create a better future. Yes, we are recording a podcast together, right? These, right. these things where we can redefine groups and where we find something that connects us. And why is that important? Because if we feel connected to somebody, we put more trust into that person, we listen longer and more intense to that person. We even would trust that person with more money, like we would invest more money in that person. So it's also like economically or let's say traditionally economically interesting as an interesting aspect. And that brings us to the third and last, or me to the third and last ingredient of this dynamic thinking, which I like to describe or summarize as we need to tell ourselves new stories or different stories and different stories that are more true when it comes to our true nature. I already pinpoint a little bit that or highlighted this aspect of being social animals right but so often in our so-called modern societies we focus so much of our energy on being individual of being independent of being successful because we did it ourselves and I guess on in my voice, everybody hears that, that I'm, I'm, I'm not mocking this, right? I'm just trying to highlight how omnipresent this wrong focus, this wrong idea about how we really function and what really makes us happy and healthy and having a good life could be. It's, it's almost like it's its own cognitive bias so that we massively overprivilege the impact of the individual and yeah. downplay the impact of the group. Exactly. Yeah, okay. that summarizes it really nice, and that's that's the three ingredients in a very in a nutshell, so to say, of the dynamic thinking. So that's that's at a, at a sort of at a personal level, possibly at a collective social level. You also think there's a fundamental role for media at this point, and one of the things which you've worked on over the last few years has been trying to articulate what something you called constructive journalism might look like. Can we quickly ask what is journalism? today that is not what is not constructive about journalism today and do what is constructive journalism yeah yeah one of the uh, most common questions i i get from journalists uh is oh so what we are doing is destructive and there you go again right people think in terms of opposites especially journalists like you always need the other side so if i ask for constructive journalism they think they are doing something else destructive okay and, so ignore uh, that question let's just tell me about what constructive journalism should be yeah i'm, I'm trying to focus on the what for which is of course the constructive bit 
So what is constructive journalism? It's by now actually an international movement or international, let's say, area in journalism. It's not something I came up with. It's um, something I kind of can say that I, me, we brought to Germany because it was less popular there a couple of years ago when we started our own online. So when I say we, I mean me plus some other highly motivated people. We started our own online magazine called Perspective Daily that you mentioned in the beginning. And it it has been practiced in many countries, for example, the UK as well, with, for example, the positive news, even though it's a bit of a misnomer because they are doing constructive journalism. Um, and then uh, the Solution Journalism Network, for example, in the US and Canada, and um, also in Scandinavia and Denmark, Ulrich Hagerup and other people, they've been practicing it um, for quite some years. And also... Many, many journalists, and this is really important to say in the beginning, um, have been practicing what I would consider constructive journalism without calling it that way. So what is constructive journalism? Basically, the one sentence summary is that it puts first and foremost the question, what now? So again, you realize this is the future-oriented perspective, right? That's solution-oriented perspective. Where do we want to go from here? Because what's often the case in, let's say, traditional journalism, is that it looks at what happened and thereby also diving into this scapegoat search and diving into um, what is wrong and then often stopping with what is wrong without looking further, without doing the extra step or the extra mile, the extra bit and also asking, okay, where do we want to go from here? And again, this creates a completely different mindset in the people who then consume the media if they are also shown all the voices, all the organizations, all the people who are already working on the future, who are already trying to come up with solutions or maybe already came up with solutions and are already putting them into practice and asking this question of the what now in their daily life. It creates a different worldview. It leaves us no longer, which is often the case in this learned helplessness with the traditional media, but it creates something that we call in psychology self-efficacy because people also eventually get the idea, well, uh, if, if they can do it, if people really can do this, maybe I can do that too. And it sounds very easy and simple. It's not. In practice, it's a huge effort. I've been talking to journalists, to uh, editorial rooms, to um, public and private media uh, for the last uh, seven years now. And it's a long journey, but it's also a very, let's say, successful journey. Not only my own, but as I said, international journey because more and more journalists and media houses are realizing that they have to change not only their business model but also the way they practice journalism. We will collect um, a raft of links and post them on the in the show notes so that we can all go and explore them. Uh, Marin, it's been a huge pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for walking us through. Thank you for walking through my Stone Age brain um, <laughs> and pointing to some of the potential exit clauses. Take care. Great to speak. You too. Talk soon. Bye-bye. That was On Opinion, the Palia podcast. Check out our show notes if you'd like to dig deeper into this episode's theme and join me at palia.com to explore all the world's opinions. To stay up to date with new episodes or get further insights from our guests, subscribe to On Opinion the Palia podcast, wherever you listen, and follow us on social media at Ask Palia. All our links are in the show notes, 
And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate us and leave us a review. Thank you for listening.